open our Bibles then to uh, Job chapter 19, and we'll go straight to the, the gold <coughs> in verses 25, 26, and 27. Let me read those verses again uh, for us. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart faints within me. What an amazing sentence that is. I know that my Redeemer lives. In my head, I'm, I'm singing it inwardly, fortunately for all of you, the, the chorus from the Messiah, I know that my Redeemer lives. If you ask the question, who first spoke it, somebody might say, well, perhaps it was uh, the Apostle Paul, it might have been John, perhaps it was uh, there in the prophet um, Isaiah, who's called the, uh, the Gospel or the Evangelical uh, prophet. But the answer is Job. And there are those who think that the book of Job is set in patriarchal times, so going right back to the time of Abraham. And those who disagree with that, still the, the latest date they would give is about 600 BC. So we're going way, way back before the apostles before the coming and the ministry uh, and the work of Jesus, right back to 600 BC or maybe uh, up to a millennia even before that. And it stands out as perhaps a gold in the soil. It's a, a shaft of light for Job in the midst of his despair. No one's listening to him. And his hope and his prayer is that his words won't be forgotten. Oh, that my words were written, he says. As though somebody we can imagine in this life has been the victim of injustice, has been badly treated, and they want to write a book, Tim Kernow, my side of the story, so that the truth won't be forgotten. And Job's friends have been really battering him. They've been no help at all. They've been preaching at him, saying some things that are undoubtedly true, but not really helpful for Job. And he feels that those he could have looked to for moral support are just not there. They're just making things worse. So there is Job, humiliated, rejected, in fact, the more you think about it, the more like Jesus it is. We could say of Job in this state that he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with grief. I want to take the, the four different elements of the text, I know that my Redeemer lives, to try and see what it meant for Job and um, how it might help us as well. Firstly, I know. When Job's friends came to visit and spend time with him in his loss, they talked too much, 
Sometimes you just need somebody to, to be there and not say very much if you're in desperate straits and in darkness. But they talked and talked and talked. And they pretended they were the ones that had the knowledge. They claimed to know what God was doing, but in fact they were ignorant. And although Job couldn't claim to know the reasons and to know the whys and wherefores of what was going on, he knew that what his friends were saying was far from the whole story. So he says, I know, this is what I know. I know that my Redeemer lives. What kind of knowing is this? Firstly, it's a personal knowing. I know. This is knowledge that belongs to me. It isn't someone else's knowledge that I'm using. This is knowledge that I have within me. We live in such an impersonal world, I think. People are becoming more and more detached from each other, which is strange when you think of how many trillions of words are exchanged person to person in text and um, instant messages and Twitter and online uh, and so on. So many words exchanged, su such a mass of communication, and yet for many, a diminishing sense of personal worth. And people crave meaningful relationships. And just at the point where Job is despairing of any relationships and is feeling absolutely on his own, he's given by the Spirit of God this lovely personal assurance. I know. This is what I know. And secondly, what kind of knowing is this? It, it's an instinctive knowing. It isn't the result of a logical deduction. It's not saying if this is true and this is true, then that must be true. It's not two plus two equals four. We know that. We know that to be so mathematically. Job's knowledge is an instinctive knowledge that transcends logic. I'm not saying it defies logic. I'm not saying it's irrational or illogical but it's a hope that every Christian has that transcends intellect. It can be there before and it can be there after. The intellect has ceased to be obviously working. It's an assurance given in a very deep sense, the deepest sense possible. I know that my Redeemer lives. Thirdly, it's a, it's a relevant kind of knowing. And I say this to my shame, that um, I love knowledge perhaps too much. And uh, there's so much knowledge out there, um, so many things to know. And I'm insatiably curious to know everything I can about everyone, about everything. I love knowledge, and I sort of soak it up. But not all knowledge is helpful. There are things that you wish you, you didn't know sometimes. 
And particularly as Christians, we sometimes need a filter in place so that we're taking in the things that are helpful and useful to us. And the trouble with Job's friends is that although they do have knowledge, they're not using it in a relevant way for Job. Miserable comforters, you all are, he tells them later. What they end up saying to him, and the, the reason the book of Job is a long book, is because there's such a lengthy discussion, and all the friends are chipping in, and Job is trying to keep his head above water and protest uh, against what they're saying. And what they say is really just a platitude. A platitude is someone coming to you, sometimes with good intentions, knowing of your loss, knowing of your sadness, knowing of your anxieties, and saying something that you wouldn't say isn't true, but is just not that helpful. It's true that God works all things together for good, but sometimes that isn't the most helpful thing for someone to hear first off in the midst of their uh, despair. And you couldn't argue with a lot of the things that Job's friends say. They tell Job how holy God is and how just and how righteous and how pure, but they also say that suffering and affliction is always a sure sign of God's displeasure. So they make a wrong connection. They say true things about God, and then they look at Job's situation, and they say God is holy, and God is just, and suffering in the world is a sign that somebody is incurring God's displeasure, God's wrath. And in fact, Eliphaz in chapter 4 um, and chapter 22 actually goes so far as to invent sins. And he says to Job, well, Job, you're in such a state of suffering that these are the sins you must have committed. You must have robbed somebody. You must have done this. You must have done that. And there's Bildad and Zophar. Zophar says to Job, stop moaning, Job. Stop complaining. He says, just repent. That's all you have to do. Um, why can't you see that your great sufferings must be caused by great sin? So get on your knees and repent. One of them actually says, Job, you're getting less than you deserved. And you can see why Job at the beginning of chapter 19 says, how long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? Incidentally now, though these uh, friends of Job are guilty of an error that continues into New Testament times and continues to the present day, and it's a very destructive error. It was an error made by Jesus' disciples in John chapter 9. And you remember, they come across a blind man, and the first thing the disciples say to Jesus is, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? To seek to attribute physical pain and physical sufferings to sin is a very destructive error. 
in a very broad sense, of course, suffering is connected to sin. There wouldn't be suffering in the world uh, amongst anybody if sin hadn't come in. But we may not and we dare not attribute specific sufferings to specific sins. It's an error of which the Jehovah's Witnesses are guilty in our present day, and maybe others for all I know as well. We knew of a family with a severely disabled child uh, whom Jehovah's Witnesses visited and uh, asked the parents to think of what sins they might have committed that would have resulted in such a severe disability for their child. Job knows it isn't like that. He is holding on to the fact that God is different to what his friends are telling him. And we thank God, don't we, for this assurance that we have. We can't explain. And yet we know, we simply know. I know that my Redeemer lives. And then secondly, uh, the word my emphasizes how, how personal this is. My Redeemer, not their redeemer but mine it isn't that somebody in my family has this hope or somebody i love has this hope or my children have it this is the essence of what it is to be a christian is that you can say my savior mine 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 i know thou art mine job says doesn't he in verse 27 whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart yearns within me. It's almost as though he's a bit like Zacchaeus, uh, on the edge of the crowd. Uh, he knows that Jesus is there, but he's not able to see him. We know Zacchaeus had the answer of climbing up a tree to get himself noticed by Jesus, although Jesus was, of course, all the time seeking him. But have you ever been on the edge of a crowd and maybe there's a celebrity or a member of the royal family uh, there. You can't see them, but you have to ask somebody else. Uh, what are they wearing? Uh, what were they like? What did they say to you? What did you think of them? For Job, with his Redeemer, that he is seeing from all this distance in the future, my Redeemer, he says, I shall see for myself and not another. I won't have to rely on second-hand reports or third-hand reports. It won't be that other people know him, that other people see him, that it's all going on apart from me over there. No, I will see him with my own eyes. It's such grace, isn't it, that the Lord should accept us to such a level that we can say, my Redeemer, that he allows himself to be claimed in that way. We understand that he would claim us, and that's a marvelous miracle, that he would say of us, my people, that he would say to you, you're mine, but that he would allow us to say of him, my Redeemer. We read in Hebrews, don't we, that he's not ashamed 
to call us brothers. He would walk down the street with you and he would not be ashamed of you. How important this is. It is such a test of whether you're a Christian. You cannot rely for salvation on Jesus Christ via someone else. It may be something of a comfort for you to know there's someone in your family who can say, I know that my Redeemer lives. But you will not be saved and you will not see heaven unless you're able to say the same thing for yourself. I know that my Redeemer lives. And that is available to you, that gracious privilege from God, that we could claim him and say of Jesus Christ, my Redeemer. And then thirdly, what is this word uh, Redeemer? I know that my Redeemer lives. There's several concepts bound up um, in this. In one sense, it's a, an advocate. So somebody that will come alongside, almost in a legal sense, and take on your case. And we might uh, rightly imagine it's a case that no other barrister would dare to take on. It's a case where all the evidence is against you. It's a case where there are witnesses who have signed statements. And it's very clear that you're guilty. It's very clear that you've committed the crime of which you are charged. No one else will touch the case. It's a hopeless case. But the Redeemer will take on your case. The Redeemer listens. And here is the answer to Job's longings. In the Old Testament, uh, particularly it comes out in the, in the law, but also in the story of Ruth and Boaz. The Redeemer is a close relative who would buy back family property that may have had to be sold or pay a sum to save a family member from slavery. It's the recovery of that which is lost. It's a drawing alongside, as uh, Boaz did to, to Ruth. You know in the story uh, of Ruth, um, how that her husband uh, had died. Uh, she was a Moabitess, and she'd uh, devoted herself to her mother-in-law, Naomi's God. They returned to Israel. Uh, Naomi said, call me bitter, because the Lord has, has taken away my husband and my sons. But Ruth had stayed. And in the goodness and the lovely providence of God, when they went back, uh, it was very clear as Ruth gleaned in the fields, in their poverty to provide food, to keep them from starving, lo and behold, not only was there a man who was kind to them, but he was a man who was a relative of Naomi's family. It's one who takes on liabilities. I don't, I'm not saying that Boaz thought Ruth was a, a liability. If he thought that, he wouldn't have dared to, to say it. But somebody that takes on to provide security, that takes on a case, even in Boaz's case, to marry Ruth, so that her future could be secure, so that she would be, in fact, and her 
uh, mother-in-law would be provided for. In um, the case of Ruth, there were potentially two redeemers. There was one who was in fact a closer relative than Boaz, and then there was Boaz himself, and they came to an agreement. And uh, the one who was closer in the end withdrew and said, no, Boaz, you, you be the one to be the redeemer. For us, of course, there's no question that there is only one redeemer. There's only one who's qualified, and he is related to us. How is he related to us? He's related to us by his own choice. He makes himself a member of the human race, and in adoption, we are drawn into his family. He makes himself ours. And so our kinsman, redeemer, Jesus, sees us in our desperate states, in our desperate state, sees our debts, debts that can never be repaid, sees that our situation would get worse and worse if he didn't step in, saw that no one else could help. He comes and he offers himself on the cross. He lives the life that we couldn't live. He offers his own body on the altar of Calvary. He pays the price. He secures our future. Like Boaz to Ruth, he joins himself to us in the closest of relationships so that all is well. And as you would expect in that kind of arrangement, the one who is redeemed is very precious to the one who redeems. And the one who is redeemed belongs to the Redeemer by right. There's something else, though, here as well, isn't there? And as, in as much as Job's hope is expressed <clears throat> in terms of what we might say is a conundrum or a paradox, he says, in my flesh I shall see God, verse 26. And yet that is after my skin has been thus destroyed. How can that be resolved? Job, by faith, sees himself physically whole in his body, with his eyes beholding God. But it will be after the dissolution, the destruction of his body as it is now. How do we resolve that conundrum? We know, don't we, that Jesus is the redeemer, and he's the redeemer not only of the soul, but also of the body. Maybe this is a, a neglected part of the Christian hope. He has the power, in uh, Philippians 3, verse 20, to bring about uh, a great change. Uh, the Apostle Paul says, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So beyond the death of the believer 
and beyond whatever process of decay affects the believer's body and beyond even the complete absence of remains, God will raise the believer up again and grant to them glorified bodies. These lowly bodies will be changed. We shall be recognizably ourselves and yet glorified. And all that is there in Job's hope. The Apostle Paul says for the Christian, our bodies are joined to Jesus. He cares about our bodies. They are temples for his spirit to dwell in. We cannot just do what we like with our own bodies. We are redeemed at a price, Paul says. Therefore, glorify God with your body. And this is the final victory over sin and the curse. That we who have suffered from the effects of the curse, we who have been prone to aging and decay and frustration and groaning and all kinds of bodily ailments and disease, and we who have had to endure death itself, we shall be clothed immortal. We shall be raised even as we were raised spiritually, we shall be raised physically to newness of life. Job there in this great sentence is envisaging that in his flesh he shall see God. We shan't be angels or disembodied spirits floating around in the ether. Heaven is a solid place and we shall be solid people, and yet glorified. There's at least two of us in this congregation who are looking forward to being able to see God with two working eyes. But we should all have bodies that are capable of serving, capable of worship, capable of taking in uh, who God is, taking in the loveliness of Jesus. And I ought to say then that we shouldn't think, as we read this book of Job, we cannot think indeed that any physical illness or suffering has to be a sign of God's displeasure with us. Job, before his suffering, was the godliest as well as the wealthiest man in the world. He remained godly throughout his sufferings. He says, even though he kill me, if God kills me, I'll still trust him. And he was godly all the way through. Uh, Satan was deceiving himself. Nothing guarantees our health in this life. And nothing has gone wrong with the love of God or the purpose of God if we find ourselves ill or afflicted by sickness and disease or chronic illnesses of any kind or disabilities. Those things will all be dealt with when we are made whole, when we are glorified. And that is the guarantee of the gospel. Soul redeemed and body redeemed too. And then lastly, this great uh, comfort at uh, the end of that uh, 
sentence, I know that my Redeemer lives. He's alive. He always has been alive, and he will be there right at the end. He's the conqueror of death. He conquered death for himself. He conquered death for all who trust him. He has the power of an indestructible life. My Jesus knows me now. He knows my past, my present, my future. He knows the truth about me. And yet, despite that, he will be there for me at the end. And indeed, at the point of my death, he will be there to welcome me. And then later, in his good purposes, at the general resurrection, when all things are renewed, he will be there and he will grant me a great glorified body. But Job looks away from his present sufferings to the end, a living redeemer who towers over history, one who, unlike his friends, <coughs> unlike others who would know him, the redeemer knows the whole story from beginning to end. He judges righteously. And this is such a help for Job with all the things that have been said about him that he knows are not right, but he knows that the judge at the end will judge righteously. The Redeemer will defend his honor and integrity. The Redeemer will be there knowing Job uh, knowing his godliness, knowing his trust and faith in God. So we can entrust our cause to him. He isn't going to disappear. He isn't going to give up on us. He will be there until the end and beyond the end. I know whom I have believed, <coughs> says Paul in his testimony. And I am persuaded that he's able to keep what I've entrusted to him until that day. At this moment in his life when Job has lost everything, yet this one thing is enough for him. <clears throat> Just this one thing. I know that my Redeemer lives. And in the end, that's the only thing that is worth knowing. And for all my knowledge, for all my memory banks of um, <clears throat> car number plates, and I do remember car number plates uh, going back decades, uh, phone numbers, they're all there in my head somewhere, and things that I've read and handy quotes to give to people at different times. For all that, it's, it's nonsense, isn't it? There's, there's one thing that's worth knowing, and it's a thing that God will give you if you ask him, the thing that you can never lose, I know that my Redeemer lives. Shall we pray? <clears throat> Father, we thank you for these things. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Job, your servant. And whilst, Lord, it may not be our lot <clears throat> to suffer in the same way that Job did, yet, Lord, there are aspects of his suffering that chime with us. 
Uh, Father, we thank you that your word is, is real and true. Father, we thank you that uh, although we may, like Job, uh, complain and struggle in the darkness, yet, Lord, we can be assured of this one thing. I know that my Redeemer lives. And uh, we pray that, Lord, we might entrust ourselves, body and soul, to you in the knowledge that you have all power, all authority in heaven and earth, a voice that raises the dead, a voice that will renew all things. Father, uh, we pray that you would draw near to us and help us to treasure and ponder the things that we have heard for Jesus' sake. Amen.